I want to remind you that these gospels are being written after Jesus' death and in the years leading up to what will become the Jews' last revolt against Rome. Their revolt will end with the destruction of the temple in 70 common era. And obviously after that, there's going to be a period of persecution by Rome where they're mad at the Jews, right? So these gospels are written sometime after about 30 common era and and before, uh, uh, probably before 80, 90 common era. So it's in that, that period uh, just where tensions are bubbling up and things are getting really, really tense and dramatic and they actually do revolt. So, so the gospels have lots of messages in them that are intended to escape Rome's attention. If a Roman should read the book or the letter or the whatever, but that would be understood by the Jews. And that's what we're watching for today. I'll try to highlight them as we go. They're on your study guide. Um, so you can, as we come to each one, I'll just kind of let you know. And uh, you can take notes for discussion later, but if you want to. When we left off with Luke's story last week, Joseph and Mary had just returned to Nazareth with their six-week-old baby. But before we dive into what happens next, here's something you may not realize. Luke and Matthew have completely different versions of how and when Jesus comes to live in Nazareth. Luke has Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth the whole time and only going to Bethlehem for Jesus' birth. That's the typical story we hear at Christmas time. But Matthew's version has them living in Bethlehem the whole time. He doesn't have them moving to Nazareth until Jesus is a toddler. So we've been following the Luke version of the story so far, but now we're going to switch over to Matthew. Um, and, and so I, I don't want you to get confused because they are different. So in Matthew's version of the story, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are living in Bethlehem, have been living in Bethlehem, have always been living in Bethlehem, and a couple of years have passed since Jesus was born. Speaking of which, our best guess as to when Jesus was born is sometime between 6 and 4 BCE. That's just a best guess. Don't get into an argument with anyone over the date Jesus was born or the date he was crucified. We don't actually know. Um, on the screen, you can see a little note that says there's no such thing as a year zero. It goes from 1 BCE to 1 common era if you're counting years yourself. I'm going to show you the dates I think are most likely, and I'll show you why I think those dates are likely. But no matter what the exact date we choose, we're going to be close enough to place Jesus' actions and teachings in the correct historical context. So remember crazy old King Herod? Well, we know from history that Herod is going to die in April of 4 BCE. So Jesus is probably one or two years old by now. Um, if, if we're, you know, sometime around 4 BCE, Herod has already executed his beloved wife, Mary Amney, and three of his sons in fits of paranoia. 
he is exceedingly dangerous and increasingly unhinged as he nears his own death. It is here that Matthew tells the story of the Magi. Magi is plural for mage. And a mage in this day and age is a learned person, well known for their skill. Some are known for their expertise in astronomy, or others for astrology, or magic arts, or simply for their wise counsel. A mage is often in the employ of powerful kings. Matthew says there's more than one mage, thus the plural magi, but we don't know how many there actually are. It could have been two. It could have been a lot more. We only land on three because they bring three special gifts with them. By all indications, these particular magi are likely in the employ of an Eastern king. This is a diplomatic mission from one king to another. The Magi have read the astrological signs and seen a star indicating a new king has been born in Judea, the land of the Jews. I don't think it's a big star like we see on the Christmas cards. I think what they see in their readings is a lot more subtle than that. Perhaps they simply explain their journey to everyone as following a star rather than explaining all the intricacies of their astrology. Whatever it is that they see is important enough that they convince their wealthy employer that they should set out on a long and dangerous journey bearing expensive gifts. They are undoubtedly accompanied by armed guards. We know from the stories in the Hebrew Bible that this trip takes many months, even over a year, depending on where they're coming from and how many stops they make. These magi, I suspect, make many diplomatic stops along the way, bringing gifts to other allies and potential allies. Finally, they reach Jerusalem. Matthew tells us they saw the, store, the star when it rose, but the star seems to have disappeared during their travels. So they're probably feeling a little confused and unsure of themselves. What if they were wrong? What if they spent all this time, come all this way and spent all their employer's money and it was all a mistake? Nevertheless, they press forward and ask to meet the king of Jerusalem, probably thinking the newborn king must be his son, right? They ask King Herod, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to prostrate ourselves before him. Now, this is usually translated as worship him, but in the historical context, to prostrate yourself to someone is just being polite. This is how someone would greet an extremely important person. You'd prostrate yourself before them. That's how Jacob greeted his brother Esau after a long absence. Absence. This is a this is normal polite behavior in in this part of the world at this time. It's not worshiping him like we tend to think. Well, anyway, news of a newborn king is a total shock to Herod. 
I think he quickly hustles the Magi out of the room until he can figure out what to do. Word gets out, of course, and the rumors fly quickly through Jerusalem that a new king of the Jews has been born. And it doesn't take long for folks to make the connection to the prophesied and long-awaited Messiah. Is it possible that the Messiah has been born? Herod summons the chief priests and the religious lawyers. That's what the folks called scribes in your Bible are. They're lawyers, experts in the Jewish law. And Herod asks them where the Messiah is to be born according to prophecy. And they tell him, that the prophet Micah had predicted, you, Bethlehem and Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, out of you will go forth one leading, one who will shepherd my people Israel. So here's where to maybe start jotting thoughts as we go through this on your study guide, because this part is astounding. It's interesting that the lawyers don't tell King Herod the context of this particular prophecy from Micah 5, and that they water it down significantly. They would have known, and perhaps even been using the the Greek Septuagint version of the Hebrew Bible that was in common use at the time. Let's, Let's take a look at what it says. The prophecy is set at a time when the Assyrian forces are arrayed against Israel. Israel is about to be slaughtered. So this is back in the, you know, 720 something BCE-ish. It's around in there is is when the prophecy was made. At the top, I've got what the lawyers tell King Herod, but the Greek in their quote is very watered down from the original prophecy in Micah. Micah actually says, you Bethlehem, are few in number among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come a ruler of Israel, one going forth from the beginning, from eternity. He shall appoint the time of Israel's travails, meaning childbirth, and once delivered, as in childbirth, the remnant shall return to the children of Israel." And the Lord shall stand and see and feed his flock with power, and they shall dwell in the glory of the name of the Lord their God, for they shall be magnified, they shall become great to the ends of the earth. The scribes even water down the word for ruler. In the version they tell Herod, they use a word with the same root as our word for hegemony, a fairly benign word used for a general power structure. But the Septuagint uses a much stronger word. The word ruler in the Septuagint is archonta and is the same root as the word for beginning, our case. So um, you can see a play on words there, the, the um, archonta, from the archase, from the beginning. And it's the same root our word archangel comes from. It means very high up in the hierarchy. And in this context, it means the top of the top. This prophecy is about the arch ruler of Israel, eternal in origin. And that part they tell about 
uh, Herod about the shepherds <laughs> is watered down too. The Hebrew version of the passage says explicitly that the Messiah will arise and shepherd in the strength of the Lord. But the scribes choose to quote the Greek Septuagint translation, which only implies shepherding by referring to the Lord feeding his flock. <laughs> I can see why they water it down. This whole passage in Micah is not something you want to tell crazy paranoid King Herod. They even water down the bit about Bethlehem being small. They say this small town is by no means least among the rulers of Judah, meaning that if tiny little Bethlehem is important to the Jews, then the Jews can't possibly be a threat to big, powerful Herod. Whereas in the actual prophecy, both the Hebrew and the Greek Septuagint versions refer to Bethlehem as being small few, and insignificant in Judah. Basically the opposite of what the scribes tell Herod. So taken all together, it seems pretty clear to me that none of this watering down is by accident. The chief priests and religious lawyers are trying to avoid the Jews being perceived as a threat in any way. They know what happens to people whom Herod thinks are a threat. They try to minimize Bethlehem's role and downplay this whole Messiah eternal king thing. Nevertheless, you can probably guess how Herod responds to the idea of a new king being born in Bethlehem. He calls a secret meeting with the Magi and grills them about exactly when the star first appeared to them. Then he sends them to Bethlehem and tells them to search for the child, and as soon as they find him, to report back. So Herod can prostrate himself before this new king too. <laughs> well, the Magi weren't born yesterday. They see what's up. They set out for Bethlehem as soon as possible, and the most wonderful thing happens on their way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The star they had seen way back home months and months ago, appears. What a relief. Matthew says when they see the star, they rejoice with joy exceedingly gladly, greatly. And that's hilarious, I think. It's like bold-faced type with four exclamation points. They are ecstatic to see that star. They must have been so worried that they misread the signs. Phew. The star is back. They can see it right over Bethlehem, or at least whatever actual signs they are interpreting tell them they are on the right track. The way Matthew puts it, it is that the star goes ahead of them until it stops over the place where the child is. Now, Bethlehem is like five or six miles from Jerusalem. So this is a pretty fanciful way of putting it. And Perhaps what is being conveyed here is that the Holy Spirit guides them. There's not really any other way an actual star could perceptibly move or shine differently in a five-mile stretch of road. There's another mystery in the story. If this happens many months or even a year or more after Jesus was born, then according to Luke, Joseph and Mary are long gone from Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth. But the story in Matthew places the family in Bethlehem the whole time. 
Luke and Matthew have completely different versions of how and when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph come to live in Nazareth. So which story is right, Matthew or Luke? Well, I don't feel compelled to reconcile the two stories. We know that the stories in the Bible are told from various viewpoints and use different source material. In fact, having two versions of a story is almost normal in the Hebrew Bible. So it makes sense that duplicate stories would continue to be embraced in the New Testament. Having two or more versions tells us this is a really important story, but that it's important to different groups in different ways. Matthew, as we know, is focused on showing how Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecies. And this part of his story is no different. The point for Matthew is that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. His story is much darker than Luke's. And unfortunately, Matthew's story rings true given what we know of Herod. Here's what Matthew says happens. The Magi have no trouble finding Mary and the child. The Greek here is not the word for baby. It is the word for a young child. The Magi, however many there are, prostrate themselves and give Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All three gifts are fit for a king. And having been warned in a dream, and no doubt by their own common sense, the Magi go home without going back through Jerusalem, leaving Herod to wonder if, if they ever found that newborn king of the Jews. Once again, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, warning him that Herod is going to be searching for Jesus in order to kill him. The angel commands Joseph to take his family and escape to Egypt. The Greek is in the imperative. The angel means take your family now, immediately. And that's exactly what Joseph does. This unusual picture captures the idea of Mary and Joseph's midnight flight to Egypt with Jesus as a toddler and in the background, you can see the caravan of Magi heading home. Matthew says this whole flight to Egypt is to fulfill a, pro a prophecy in Hosea that says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Here's another place to jot notes on your um, study guide. This, is, this pops up on the, um, what we'll be talking about. So this passage of out of Egypt, I called my son makes no sense if you go back and actually look at the words of the Lord in Hosea. Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they turned from me. They sacrificed to idols and they burned incense to images. So obviously, Hosea is talking about the history of Israel, not Jesus. This is all about when God called Israel out of slavery and they ended up rejecting him. So let's think about that for a second. If Matthew realizes Jesus had to flee to Egypt himself, and Matthew sees 
this bit in Hosea as a messianic prophecy, then what Matthew is implying is that Jesus represents Israel. And if that's the case, Israel is getting a whole new chance to respond to God's call. That is astounding. See what amazing insights we can discover when we use that simple backpack tool of always, always checking the context and meaning of the original prophecy. Jesus has been sent to Egypt, according to Matthew, so Israel can be called out of slavery all over again. Jesus is going to change everything. Well, Herod finally snaps to the fact that he's been outwitted by the Magi. In a rage, he orders that all boys two years old or younger living in or near Bethlehem are to be killed. How horrible. This is called the slaughter of the innocents. This is terrible. And Matthew says that this fulfills the words of the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and mourning greatly, Rachel weeping for her children, unwilling to be comforted, for they are no more. So here's another place, the last place on your study guide to, to jot your thoughts. We Christians tend to take this at face value. It's pretty obvious, right? Um, Rachel was the mother of, uh, she was married to Jacob, the actual original man who was named Israel. Rachel is the mother of, uh, was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. She actually ended up dying in childbirth with Benjamin. So we, if Christians take this like prophecy from Matthew, as it's quoted as being obvious within the context of the slaughter of the innocents, Israel's mothers are bitterly mourning their children in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, right? Ha. But if this is really a fulfillment of an old prophecy, we need to go back and check the original passage so we can be sure we understand what Matthew is saying. Never assume. The prophecy is in Jeremiah 31, 15. Back in Jeremiah, God says, at that time, which we know is a special phrase in the Hebrew Bible, meaning in the end times, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have been unfailingly kind to you. I will build you up again, and you will dance with joy. I will bring you home from all the ends of the earth, the blind, the lame, the pregnant, the laboring, a great multitude will return, and I will lead them beside streams of living water on a smooth path so they will not stumble. Notice that smooth path part of the prophecy. Later, we'll hear about John the Baptist being called to prepare a smooth path for the Lord to come, but it is here that we understand what that's about. The Lord is not coming alone. He is bringing with him all his people. The smooth path is not because the Lord needs it. 
It's so the poor, suffering, abused people he's bringing home will have an easier time on the walk home. Why is this rarely, if ever, pointed out? We have shellacked this story so much, we've lost the depth and beauty and fullness of the blessings God intends for us. God says, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. And it is in that context that we, that Hosea, I'm sorry, that Jeremiah says those words about Rachel weeping for her children. By inserting this quote in his story, in his gospel, Matthew is reminding Israel that the Lord says, I hear your weeping. I hear your inconsolable sorrow over the loss of your children, and I am coming to you. I will comfort you all. I will bring you not only out of Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, but from wherever you are at the ends of the earth, I will comfort you in your bitterest sorrow and turn your mourning into joy. I will bring you home to me. And that just blows me away. It is so worth it to go back and look at the context of these quotes. The gospel writers just throw in so casually. Their listeners instantly recognize these quotes and grasp their context. They would have gotten the whole message and realized that when Matthew says Rachel is weeping for her children, he is saying the end time spoken of has come and God is here. God is with all the families of Israel in their suffering, and God will turn their mourning into gladness and their sorrow into joy. Wow, that is almost exactly opposite what we Christians understand from the quoted passage if we don't go back and read it in context. Well, eventually Herod the Great dies, and an angel of the Lord appears again to Joseph in a dream to let him know it's safe to go back to Israel. So Joseph gathers Mary and Jesus up once again, and they begin their journey home from Egypt. And this is when Matthew says the family moves to Nazareth, and he explains why they don't go back to Bethlehem. Here's what Palestine looks like under Herod the Great. It's the blue part. That red part is Phoenicia and Qualisareum. You can, you can see the um, Sea of Galilee in the north, and then Samaria and Judah, uh, Judea and um, Idumea down by the Dead Sea. So Herod changes his will several times before he dies, finally settling on his son Herod Archelaus as his primary heir. And this results in a big fight between Herod Archelaus and his remaining siblings when Herod the Great dies. And it gets so bad the sons eventually appeal to Rome to settle their dispute. Rome gives Galilee in the north and Perea in the southeast to Herod Antipas. The north northern area east of the Sea of Galilee goes to Herod Philip II. And all the rest of it, Samaria, Judea, and Idumea, shown here in aqua blue, are given to Herod Archelaus as the primary heir. But 
Rome strips Archelaus of the title of king. There is no more king of Judea. The, Ju the ruler is now called an ethnarch, which literally means nation ruler. Note that all these brothers are named Herod. So from now on, when we read about Herod doing something, we have to consult our geography to know which Herod it is. And, and the text will usually give us both names so we can, we can tell which Herod they're talking about. This particular Herod, Herod Archelaus, is thoroughly hated by the Jews for refusing to right some wrongs that had been done by his father, Herod the Great. Things go from bad to worse, and in about 10 years, he's going to be ordered to return to Rome, where he will be deposed as ethnarch. How bad do you have to be to get deposed by the Romans? So this Herod Archelaus is one bad dude. So when Joseph hears that Herod Archelaus is reigning over Judea, where Bethlehem is, he's afraid to go back there. So again, Warned in a dream, he goes farther north to Galilee, which is ruled by Herod Antipas. And there the little family settles in Nazareth. Matthew says this is to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Well, there is no such prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. No one really knows what Matthew means here. There is some speculation that it might be a pun on one of the Hebrew words for branch, a term that is often used in the Hebrew Bible for the Messiah. The Greek word, Nazarias, for Nazarene, sounds kind of like the Hebrew word for branch, Netzer. But I think this is a weak argument because Netzer is only used in reference to the Messiah twice. A different Hebrew word is used the other five times the Messiah is referred to as a branch. I think it's more likely that Matthew is referring to the multiple places in the prophets where the Messiah is characterized as being lowly, despised, and rejected. That's, that's all over the place. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53. Nazareth was apparently just the sort of place a lowly, despised and rejected person would come from. In fact, in John 1:46, someone eventually says about Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And this makes a lot of sense to me. God delights in bringing the best from the lowly, lowliest and most unlikely places. And so, one way or another, whether you go to Matthew's version or Luke's version, Jesus ends up growing up in Nazareth. And all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention that he has siblings. Matthew 125 says that Joseph does not consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born, which certainly implies to me that he consummates it after Jesus is born. Also, all three Gospels tell of an incident when Jesus is ministering and his mother and brothers can't get through the crowd to get to him. And Acts tells us that his mother and brothers were present at that famous Pentecost after his death and resurrection. Matthew also tells of the time Jesus is ministering in his hometown of Nazareth and the people there can't believe it's actually Jesus doing all these miracles and stuff. And they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? 
isn't Mary his mother? And aren't James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas his brothers? And don't we know all his sisters? James actually ends up playing a big role in the Christian community after Jesus leaves. We'll see that James doesn't start out as a believer, but he changes. And in Galatians, Paul tells about going to Jerusalem and meeting with James, the Lord's brother. And as an aside, Judas here is not Judas Iscariot. This is just Judas, Jesus's brother. So this may be another place you need to take a deep breath. There are whole huge swaths of Christianity who don't believe Joseph ever knew Mary sexually. And to make that work, they have to believe these references to brothers and sisters are references to siblings by a former marriage, which is why the story arises later that Joseph was an older man. He had to be to have all these other kids before he marries Mary. So don't feel alarmed or pressured by any of this. This class is meant to stretch you and point out different ways the scripture can be interpreted. It is meant to show what's actually there and separate out what has been shellacked onto it over the centuries. But it is not meant to rob you of your joy. If the Holy Spirit touches your heart through your understanding of the Virgin Mary as remaining forever a virgin, that is still real and valid. The Holy Spirit touches us in all kinds of ways, really every way possible. The good news is about God touching us and us touching God. That's the important part, not whether Jesus had siblings or not. So on with the story. Every year, Jesus and his family go to Jerusalem for the Passover. One year, when he's 12, Jesus stays behind in the temple courts, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. Everyone is amazed at the understanding this preteen has and of the answers he gives when the teachers question him. Well, Mary and Joseph just figure Jesus is hanging out with his friends elsewhere in the caravan on the way home. So they don't even start looking for him till they've been on the road a whole day. When they realize he isn't among the folks in the caravan, they hurry back to Jerusalem. When they finally find him in the temple courts, they are astonished. What in the world is he doing here? Mary scolds Jesus for worrying them like this. How could he go off without telling them where he was going? Does this sound familiar to any parents or teens? Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Don't you know this is where I had to be here in my father's house? <laughs> now, if I'm married, Jesus is grounded for a month for sassing back at me like that. But clearly, Mary is more mature than I would have been. She sees the depth in Jesus' answer. She doesn't understand it, but she sees it. And she adds it to the pile of things in her heart that she is pondering. And so they return home and Jesus submits himself to his parents. This is the last we hear of Joseph. He lives long enough to teach Jesus his craft of carpentry. And although it is possible Jesus was a stonemason or a metallurgist, since the same word can be used for those, the more common usage of the word is for a woodworker. According to the scholar John Nolland, 
Jesus and Joseph would have made yokes for animals. They would have made furniture, doors, and beams to be used in construction. In this humble setting, in poverty, in a small town, Jesus grows in wisdom, maturity, and grace in the eyes of both God and people. So it's time for our breakout sections. We'll go back and look at how the messages in the Gospels are intended to escape Rome's attention, but are meant to be understood by the Jews. And we'll reflect on whether we as Christians have been reading those Gospels like the Romans did or like the Jews did. Welcome back. Um, our groups were small today because we've got like a whole bunch of people out traveling. Talk to me about what came up in your in your discussions. I focused on something we didn't talk about, but um, it just sticks with me. The third, the third box down about the voice was heard in Rama weeping and mourning greatly, Rachel weeping for her children, unwilling to be comforted, for they are no more. To me, what that chord struck was how the Jewish people may harbor resentment toward Jesus being born because of Herod's annihilation of the young children and how this may have been an appeasement to the Jews, but as a mom, no. Right. right. And I couldn't get past that. <laughs> Does it feel sometimes like there are things that can never be fixed? Oh, yeah. It makes it hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that God can fix even that and that God will fix even that. I just think that the Jewish people of the time were hurting so much that they couldn't receive Christ mm -hmm. as the Messiah. That's and that story and, and that experience as a people that may hold people back to this day. Yeah, and they certainly, yeah, they certainly have all that trauma. We all know from our families that trauma in our family past shows up in ourselves, you know, sometimes physically and sometimes emotionally and, um, and how much deeper and broader and bigger that is that you're getting to the trauma in not only the immediate trauma of the slaughter of the incident, innocence by Herod, but all of similar trauma that they've had all the way back through their history. And it's all bound up in this Messiah language, you know, that the Messiah is going to come and, and, and fix things. Bye Rhonda. Um, it, it's very strange. It, it, it's a, it's a strange dynamic because clearly they, the Jews look for the Messiah and they were clearly looking for the Messiah as a good thing. 
in this context, but it does kind of underline the fact that they were looking for the Messiah as a as somebody who was going to like wipe out Rome, right? Yeah, they were kind of looking for a, a general of an army, not a child. Right. Right. What other thoughts? We also talked a little bit about how. Gail, this is this is a lot of information without a lot of time to digest it. But um, like the part about coming out of Egypt, we've always just heard that that was the story. They he came from Egypt, you know. Not. They never link it to prophecy. And that was one of the things we just had talked about is how when you go through the New Testament, you have your stories that you read. You don't read the whole book. You read the story and then you skip to the next parable. And then the next, you don't really read all the information. So this is, this is new. Yeah. What did you say? I said, I've had my mind blown by a couple of things. Um, yeah, I never, you know, Herod was nuts because who else would kill that many babies? But um, I never really thought about Herod being insane and um, bringing that point out. And, you know, he was insane enough. He was willing to kill his own families. Of course, he was willing to kill other people's families. So um, that kind of was a, a new concept to me and that I got to thinking about you know all the royalty royal families with all the inbreeding and how they're all crazy but um that's beside the point but then you you know I, I started wondering because I've known all these different um kings of different or empires or you know um through history and even recent history who had venereal diseases that made them insane and they killed a lot of people and stuff like that and I'm like so I've seen Herod in a new light and all of a sudden, Alice Cooper playing him in Jesus Christ Superstar made so much sense. But <laughs> so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I was looking at all that. But then um, the fact that we were asking who who was watering down the story that Herod was reading. The, who, what, who was it was the scribes. So what had happened was was the Magi came to Herod and said, "We want to." We want to, you know, pay our respects to the newborn baby, King of the Jews, which they assumed is Herod's, right? And, so then the and Herod's were... like, I don't have a baby, but but he knows this this whole Herod is a Jew. He knows this whole new King of the newborn King of the Jews. He knows this Messiah stuff. Herod is a smart man. He makes this connection, just like the Jews are going to make the connection. He calls in the scribes who are experts in these old prophecies and the law and all that stuff says oh remind me again where the messiah is going to be born and they tell him the messiah is going to be born in bethlehem bethlehem is not a threat to you this messiah is just a shepherd not to worry <laughs> and they suppress the entire context of of the significance of this the other question Julie um, brought up and we were talking, um, these books were not written immediately after Jesus' death, correct? Correct. They Unlikely. were. Unlikely. Right. 
stories were passed on, but they didn't get written down till when, approximately. So they're probably. getting written down between 50 and 100 common era. Okay, so 50 to 100 years later-ish. No, 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 20 to 70 years later. Okay, got it. That, oh, that's right, because he was 30 and, yeah. Right. Okay. So 20 um, to, so you could have some eyewitnesses. So within their I mean, lifetime. Yeah. Within the lifetime of the people of Matthew, Mark, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all their, their lifetimes, although Luke never met him. But right in the middle of that time in, at 70 is when, you know, the, the revolt happened from 64 to 70, 70. In 70, the Romans came in and crushed them. The other question Julie had, she said, they weren't calling themselves Christians. And I said, well, no, oh, absolutely the first not. people were called Christians at Antioch yeah. by that's others much, making fun of them. And I told her we'd get into that later. But yeah. she asked approximately what time frame that was that so they that's, called them Christians. that's during Paul's journeys, which would have been, you know, in this same time frame, you know. Yeah. Does that answer your questions, Julie? <laughs> I don't even remember my questions anymore. <laughs> um, I, I guess I didn't realize that that the way that in the scripture was written could be interpreted differently for different groups of people, and um, and it would be to uh, you know they read like secret messages or something like that for the Jewish people that they didn't want the Romans to know. I, I mean that. That never ever occurred to me at all, and and as far as you know, the uh, trauma of the children being killed. I mean, the the Jewish people had suffered so much trauma for like generations prior to that. It's just kind of like another another day in the life of the Jewish nation, right? So I I can't imagine that they would have focused on those children being killed is and associating it with Jesus. I guess that to me, that wouldn't have come up to, in my, my mind at all. Except for the fact that here, as we move forward, after all this has happened, I, I think probably in the moment, who knows how much was known in that moment, probably not much. Uh, these and that's the point that's which is why I'm saying these these stories are written in retrospect um, where people have made the connections and understand so are you saying then that the Jewish people later on when they're reading this and and maybe making the connection that Jesus was born during that time and aunt so-and-so's uh you know entire you know her son was slaughtered and and they they needed to be okay with that in order to follow Jesus. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I don't think I'm saying they need to be okay with it. I don't think we have to be okay with any of the tragedy of life. Okay. Tragedy in life is evil. Tragedy in life is bad. But they didn't want they didn't want that to be a stumbling block for the Jews of that particular generation. Well, yeah, I mean, and that is, has been the challenge for not only the Jews from the very beginning, but for us is, can we live life where we experience this kind of trauma and loss and still trust God to be good? Okay. Right. And that was Jesus. Jesus message was God is good. 
blessings come from God. In spite God of what will be with right. you in these awful times, and in the end, it will God will make it right. And it's not necessarily just in the end that God makes it right. I think there is an opportunity in this life where God makes it makes it right. I don't think it's all in the future necessarily. I get questions from people that I have a really hard time answering and most of the time I don't answer and I've even had this question from one of my own children how can you trust and believe in a God who allowed all those babies to be slaughtered that allowed all the babies in Egypt to be slaughtered who allows entire nations to be wiped off the face of the earth how can you trust and believe that in that God mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what do you say what what do you all Respond I don't think God people. allows that. I think that is the actions of man and the actions of individuals that are. But God can do anything, right? So he could have stopped it. Yeah, and he can stop anything, but does he? He gives us free will. Mm-hmm. We have an opportunity to make choices, good and bad. And some people do make the best choice they can with the information they have at the time, you look back and you say, maybe I shouldn't have made that choice. But you do the best you can with the information you have at the time. Some people don't care. Sociopaths do not care, you know? And I've always, what I've answered, Shirley, what I've answered my kids with that one is that God promised or God said that he gave everybody free will. So he's not going to take somebody else's free will away from them. They need to make the right choice because God gave, gives them the knowledge to make the right choice and they decide not to make the right choice. So all of those tragedies have really nothing to do with God. They have more to do with humans and their nature. And yeah. Like what's going on in the Ukraine right now, it's tragic, but we know that that is the will of one particular person and the people are allegiant to him in carrying that out. Some are and some aren't. I see it associated with God's mercy. Um, I, I think that... God certainly could stop it at any moment, right? Um, but it is, I, I believe it is God's mercy to allow people who are doing evil things to continue to have the opportunity to change. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us, suffer so they continue to have the opportunity to change Mm. and to me that the fact that it is difficult for us has to do with our mercy runs out before god's does (laughs) that's true i'm gonna um like stop here today. Um, I just want to 
Thank you for being here. I hope this guest has given you food for thought and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.